This morning, I want to begin by talking to you about emojis. Now, for those of you who don't know what an emoji is, you're looking at a bunch on the screen right now. There are these little characters that have overtaken our lives. The first emoji was invented in 1999 by a Japanese designer. And since then, they've become a part of our daily vocabulary. One study cites that 74% of Americans use emojis in their online communication every day. What's so funny is I meet people all the time who years ago mocked me for using emojis, and then I'll put my phone, I'll have a text message from them, and it has three in it. And so several of us have made jokes about not being a part of it, and now we're, we're all in. One study cited that six billion, that's with a B, emojis are sent on Facebook Messenger every single day. It's a lot of emojis. The most popular emoji out there is this one. It's known as the laughing, crying emoji or the tears of joy. It works for all sorts of circumstances. It's like a Swiss Army knife emoji. But as I was getting ready for this message today, I found out some interesting information. One study I read said that men are more, sorry, men are less likely than women to use an emoji which involves crying. Some of us aren't surprised by that. But what is surprising is that women are more likely than men to use the poop emoji. And so I just, I found that super, super interesting. The other thing that's happened with these emojis is as, as they've added kind of some nuance and texture and emotion to text-based communication is that they've also become like symbols for people. There's people that we associate to specific emojis. Like this first one right here with the tongue sticking out and the winking eye, that's my favorite emoji. The eye roll emoji is the one my wife most often sends me. That's a little bit of an insight into our marriage. This, this, uh, these, these ones right here, I call these the praise hands, and uh, Jamie Parker uses these incessantly. It's his emoji. Uh, Pastor Clovis sends me the thumbs up more often than anything else. We have several group texts going as a staff, and a couple of them have really good jokes from Pastor Frank involving the poop emoji. And if you didn't know, Pastor Frank is an emoji. He's the one right here at the very end. And so you say, Scott, why are we talking about emojis at church? Well, I'm convinced that as followers of Jesus, we should be as familiar or passionate about studying and exegeting the Bible as we are our culture, because our Bible speaks into our culture. And years ago, I heard this quote from Karl Barth. Barth, the 20th century theologian, said, I advise young theologians to take your Bible in one hand and your newspaper in the other Read both, but interpret your newspaper from your Bible. And for me, emojis and many other things in our culture are like the newspaper. They're what we must be conversant in if we want to speak into this culture. And one of the things that has overtaken this culture is not just these emojis. It's a conversation about a theme that I call shame. Shame has become a buzzword in our culture, and it's used in a variety of ways. There's fat shaming, where people are shamed for being heavy. There's skinny shaming, where people are shamed for being thin. There's voter shaming, where you're shamed for who you voted for or didn't vote for. There's single shaming, which is really popular this time of year, where you shame people for not being in a relationship. And there's even dog shaming. This one chewed up his mom's sunglasses, and this one was the accomplice. You say, Scott, why is there so much conversation around shame? Well, I think some of it is because our culture is confused 
about the difference between criticism and shame. Not everybody who criticizes something you do is shaming you. There's a big difference. But we're starting to realize the profound psychological, emotional, and spiritual impact of shame. And one person we had to thank is Brene Brown. She's one of the country's leading shame researchers, and she's written several best-selling New York Times, sorry, best-selling New York Times, New York Times best-selling books. That's the way to say it. And she's even defined shame for us. Here's how Brene defines shame. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. When you put it that way, a lot of us go, yeah, I've, I've felt shame before. I felt there was something deeply wrong with me and therefore I was unworthy of love and belonging with the people that I want to feel love and belonging from. And one of the reasons why shame is such a powerful force in our world today is because of our incessant and excessive use of social media. Whenever we go online, we are constantly reminded of the ways in which we don't measure up to other people. We compare other people's staged, filtered, and retaken photos to our everyday lives. And somewhere along the way, we forget that at best, people are showing us 50% of their life online. And we're comparing at best, 50% of what we know about their life with 100% of what we know about our own. And so we feel shame. We feel unworthy. We feel like we're not enough. One of the other things that Brene Brown does well is that she helps us distinguish between guilt and shame. Guilt is a good thing. It's that feeling we get where we go, you know what, I did something bad, and guilt leads to change behavior. Shame, on the other hand, leaves us stuck because it says, I am bad. And all throughout this week, I've been thinking of that Michael Jackson song, you know, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm really, really bad. And for many of us, that's the track that plays in our head, that we feel like there is something deeply flawed within us. And therefore, if people really knew the real us, they would run away. They would reject us. And this conversation, this topic intersects the Bible in a unique way. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're starting a series today that'll take us from now until Easter in the book of Romans chapter 8. But one of the things you have to know when you study the Bible is context is everything. And so we're going to begin today in Romans chapter 7. Romans is the sixth book of the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's bookended by Acts and 1 Corinthians if you're looking through your index And Romans is a letter written by Paul to, well, the name says it all, to the Romans. And it's his longest and densest book. And in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, this is what we read. Paul says these words. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. And if you have your Bible, up, go down to verse 24. 
Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Question for you. By show of hands, how many of you in this room have ever felt like Paul just wrote? Raise your hand. Okay, look around the room. Okay, it's sea of hands. This is why this is a passage that has spoken to people across the centuries. Because it's so descriptive of the human struggle and condition. And there's a, whole, there's a whole debate and dialogue in Christian scholarship and biblical study right now around when was Paul talking about? Was Paul writing this before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9? Before he was a follower of Jesus? Or, or was he writing it present day in the book of Romans as he was a missionary? And there's people on both sides of the argument who have really good positions. Here's what I know. Every time I've taught out of Romans 7 in my career as a pastor, the room has been full of hands with tons of people who are followers of Jesus. This passage to me seems to be very descriptive of people who both aren't yet followers of Jesus and those who are. Not just people struggling to do what they know is the right thing to do, but people who feel condemned and shamed because they're not. People who feel like they're unworthy because of their struggle. Well, after making these statements in Romans chapter 7, what Paul does is he pivots in Romans chapter 8 and in one verse makes one of the most important statements in all of the Bible. If your Bible is still open, go to Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. And this is the one verse from Romans 8 that we're going to cover this morning. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's just described his own struggle and the struggle of humanity who want to do the right thing but don't and know the wrong thing but still do it anyway and who feel wretched about themselves because of that. And he says, there is therefore, in light of all of that, not ignoring all of that, not forgetting all of that, but in light of all of that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you say, Scott, how on earth could there be no condemnation? If me and other people know the right thing to do and don't do it and know the wrong thing to do and resist it, but still do it anyway, how could there be no condemnation for that? That doesn't make sense. And that's because we haven't been reading this entire letter in its entirety. Paul has been talking for seven chapters about what Jesus has done for us in that condition. And if your Bible is still open and you go back to Romans 5, you read these words. Just a few chapters before, in this letter, Paul said this. He said, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, while we were still knowing the right thing, and not doing it, knowing the wrong thing, and doing it anyway, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got our act together. He didn't wait till we knew the right thing and did it, knew the evil thing and ignored it. No, in that condition, he died for us because he loves us. 
He continues, he says, since therefore we have now been justified or made right by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Beginning today, we're launching a new series called the Emoji Exchange. And over the next six weeks, as we journey towards Easter, each week, we're going to look at a different section in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to talk about making an exchange. We're going to lean into who does Romans 8 say we are in light of who Jesus Christ is. And each week, we're going to make an exchange in the same way that you would go to the store and go, hey, this shirt doesn't fit. I'm going to exchange it for one that does. We're going to exchange who we are on our own, in our own humanness, in our flesh, for who Jesus says we are. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to lay down who we've been and embrace who we are in Christ. And each week in this series, we're going to summarize the exchange in a sentence, our big idea. And so if you walked in this morning and got a bulletin, there's a handout in there with a big idea on there. We'd encourage you to take it out and fill in these blanks. Our first big idea in the emoji exchange is this, that in Christ, we exchange our shame for God's approval. In Christ, we exchange our shame and condemnation for God's approval. And today, in the time that I have left, what I want to do is I want to talk together about why we struggle so much with shame. Why is this such a common place that we end up getting tripped up? And how can we lay that down and practically pick up and live out of our approval in Christ? There's four reasons. The first reason I think we struggle with shame is that we still feel like we're bad. We still feel like we're bad. If you've been at church ever when we've done baptism before, you know that one of the passages that I often recite, is one of my favorite verses of scripture, it's 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And that's visually what we, what we do for you in, in, in picture form. Somebody is lowered into the water and raised back out of the water as a picture that they have died in their sins and been raised to life because of what Jesus did. In the same way that he died and was crucified and he was resurrected. And so we read this passage, and it's a great reminder that we are new creations. But the problem is, many of us, on a lot of days, we don't feel like new creations. We still feel like our old creation. We don't feel like we're good. We still feel like we're bad. We still feel like there are some things that never changed, that Jesus somehow forgot on his list, that we're still wrestling through. And I use the word we there because this is not just something I think the room struggles with. This is something the guy on the platform struggles with too. For years, I've struggled to reconcile the way that I view myself with the way God does. And it's been a struggle for years. Because I know all the right answers, you know. I know all the right things to say. I was even sitting down with my counselor recently and we were talking about this very subject and, and I went through, he said, you know, what do you feel like your identity is based in or where do you get your value from? And I, I recited this nice long sermon, you know, it was great. It was like five or six minutes. And he just sat there, kind of smiled. And he says, that sounds really good, but is that where you live from? 
Is that where you function from on a daily basis? And I think my struggle may be your struggle, which is that we have a, a professed identity, you know, who we say we are with our mouth. And then we have a functional identity where we live from every day. And for some of us, they're this far away. And for other of us, they're, they're this far away. And for many of us, we know what Jesus did for us and how he died for us and how he loves us, but we still functionally believe that we're bad. And because of that, we feel profound shame and profound, profound condemnation. That's why last week we, we, we talked about the importance of the gospel. And the gospel isn't just something you need to hear once when you become a follower of Jesus. The gospel is something you need to hear every single day again and again and again. You say, Scott, what is the gospel? Well, based upon some reading I've done, I've kind of cobbled together this two-part definition of the gospel. The first part is this, that on our own, apart from God, we are broken, lost, and sinful more than we realize. That's the bad news. That on our own, we are bad, and we're broken and lost and sinful, and it's worse than we realize. That's the bad news. Because the gospel is always bad news before it's good news. The good news, though, is that in Jesus Christ, we are whole, loved, enough, and forgiven more than we could ever imagine. We are whole, loved, enough, and forgiven more than we could ever imagine. And when you only live in and hear, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm lost, and those are the strongest words you remember hearing, you will continue to think that you are unworthy of God's love because you still feel you're bad. But as you preach to yourself the gospel and who Jesus is and who you are in him, then you will preach to yourself, the world may say that I'm bad and I may feel as broken as I've ever been, but in Christ today, I am whole, loved, enough, and forgiven. In Christ today, I am whole, loved, enough, and forgiven. Jesus says, I am whole, loved, enough, and forgiven. And when that becomes louder than the voices that declared you broken and lost and irredeemable, you will begin to make an exchange and you'll lay down your shame and you'll grab a hold of God's approval. The second reason I think we struggle with shame is that we don't believe God could possibly love someone like us. We know us better than anybody else knows us. And we go, man, if God really knew the real me, there's no way he could love me. There's no possible way he could love me. The issue in this sense is the issue of worthiness. We don't feel like we are worthy of God's love. And as a result, we struggle with feeling like we have what it takes. For me, when I first started reading Brene Brown, one of the reasons I resonated with her was she was describing my experience. You see, by nature, I have this desire to perform. It's one of the reasons I, I'm comfortable standing on a stage like this. Others of you, this would be like your worst nightmare. 
But for me, it gives me like some sort of juice to be up here. Here's the double-edged sword of that. I love being up here, but sometimes I need what comes from being up here. And instead of performing for an audience of one, if I'm in a place that's insecure, if I'm living from shame, then I perform for your approval, not for his. Because I feel like I'm not worthy and I come out here to get some sense of that. See, when you feel like you couldn't possibly be loved, what you do is you work to do something that would make it possible for you to be loved. And that manifests itself in all sorts of unhealthy ways. Whether it's an addiction or a compulsion, a habit, a nasty thing you can't let go of, it becomes a way to prop up your sense that you're not enough. And this is why we we talked about last week the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, which as well as it's known is not actually known well enough says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, this isn't just a statement for those who haven't yet experienced the love and grace and mercy of God. It's a statement for those who already have too. Because if I summarized those two verses in a sentence, it would be God loves us unconditionally and we are not condemned. God loves us unconditionally and we are not condemned. Not because what we did doesn't matter. This isn't an unconditional love that says, hey, go do whatever you want. I'm always going to love you. No, the reason God can love us unconditionally is because Jesus Christ, while we were still sinners, went to the cross and took all the penalty for our sin. Therefore, the penalty has been paid and we don't have to live under that penalty anymore. That's how we can be loved unconditionally because of what he's done for us. And so for those of us who don't feel like we could ever be loved if God knew what we were, Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, he knew what we were. Broken, sinful, lost, more than we could ever imagine. And yet, while we were still sinners, he went to Calvary and he died for us. And so part of exchanging shame for approval is recognizing that you are worthy because he went to the cross. And the cross is the greatest statement on human worthiness the world has ever seen. The third reason we struggle with shame is that the church has used shame as a motivator. One of the reasons many of you struggle with shame is because of your experience in church. The church has used shame as a motivator for one simple reason. It works. The church uses these four things that are all short-term wins and long-term losses. I call them FOGS, F-O-G-S, fear, obligation, guilt, and shame. Maybe you were in a church or you grew up in a church that used these. And so in the short term, somebody like me laid on the fear, laid on the obligation, laid on the guilt, laid on the shame to motivate you to take a step. And the reason why people use these things in the church and other environments is because they work. 
but they work in a destructive way. If you've ever seen one of those old James Bond movies that involved a nuclear weapon, all the guys in the white suits had a little card on their left pectoral muscle called a Geiger counter. And as they were around uranium and plutonium, the, the, the pieces that come together, the components of a nuclear bomb, they were studying how much exposure they had. Because you can survive a little bit of exposure, but when you cross a certain line, that becomes toxic. And as powerful as fear, obligation, guilt, and shame are in the short term, in the long term, they're toxic to your soul. And many of you are living that today. You're struggling with shame because you've left behind the short-term motivation and you've entered in the long-term toxicity. Because of that, it's become indiscernible for you to know what God's voice sounds like and what shame sounds like because they sound exactly the same in your head. Because spiritual leaders in your past have spoken shame over you and you've associated their words with God's words. And for an example of what that sounds like, I've got a little experiment I'm going to do right now. Can you stand up with, for me? Tell people your name. Hello. Jerry. I want to I show you what shame sounds like, okay? okay? What's wrong with you? Why haven't you figured this out by now? You've been a Christian for how long? And you're still struggling with this sin. Why do you need so much grace? You know, God's disappointed in you. You should be over this by now. And for some of you, it was like I was reading in your journal. Because that's what the voice of God sounds like in your head. Thank you, Jerry. And that's why shame isn't a theoretical topic. It's real life. But that isn't the voice of God. The voice of God isn't, why haven't you got this by now? The voice of God is this. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You didn't get your salvation by getting your stuff together and making yourself look presentable before God. And you're not going to continue to walk with him by getting your stuff together and looking presentable before God. It was grace in the beginning and it's grace today. And there's always more grace. And for many of us, we believe in grace for our salvation, but we function as if it's all on our shoulders. And that isn't the gospel. That's shame. And for some of us, what it means to exchange shame for God's approval is to lay down imperfect, inaccurate views of God and embrace the one that we read in here. The fourth and final reason we struggle with shame is that we've been rewarded for playing the pretending game. We've been rewarded for playing the pretending game. When you walked in this morning, I watched some of you come in and take a seat. I did that some Sundays just to see 
what the feel is and the mood is in the room. And for some of us, we walk in and if I had x-ray vision and I don't, what I would see is that you're carrying a, a bag behind you. You're carrying a backpack on your shoulders. And it's the baggage you feel when it comes to church. Or the things you're carrying that are weights that you're working through in your life. And yet on a very regular basis, when somebody asks us how we're doing at church, we say fine. Which is one of two things. Either it's a lie. We're really freaked out, insane, neurotic, and emotional. Which is one meaning of fine. Or on the other side, we're hiding. That fine is feelings inside not expressed. And some of us hide the truth about who we are because in the context of church, we've been rewarded for pretending. For some of us, Sunday morning is the most inauthentic time of the week. And we can't be authentic because you've been hurt before. Or we can't be authentic because we've been taught that church is the place where you show up looking good and you don't let people see your real struggles. And the problem is, is that people can't love your pretend face. It can only love your real face. And God can't transform your mask. He can only transform the real you. And some of us struggle with shame because we know that we've been playing the pretending game for a long time. Some of us are afraid of God and we're afraid that God would condemn us if we were honest. Some of us haven't prayed an honest prayer in a long time because we don't feel like we can tell God the truth. Others of us are afraid other people at church would judge us and reject us if we told the truth. Why would you think that? Because people at church have judged and rejected you before. And so you're not honest. I, I once was a part of a church where I felt like I couldn't be myself where I had been honest and I had been judged and rejected. And you know what I did? I started what I call hedging, not showing the full me, not being completely honest, holding things back, putting on a show. And eventually what happened is that in some sick way, I still wanted those people's approval. So weird how the people that we don't actually want to be like, we want to like us. It's weird how that works sometimes. But let me tell you what that, what that leads to. If we live for the approval of others, we will always end up in shame. If you live for the approval of other people, you will always struggle with not feeling enough. You will always struggle with shame. You will always struggle with feeling condemned. But... If we live from the approval of God, we will discover that we are enough in Christ. Not enough in our own giftedness, not enough in our own talent, not enough in our own attractiveness, but enough in him. And this is why this one verse can radically alter your life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you do, what is possible is you can become free from the bondage to shame and the approval of other people. You can become free from the condemnation that rolls in your head like a track. 
And you can step into the approval that you've been longing for in all of the wrong places and finally find it in the place that will fulfill you. In Christ, we get to exchange our shame for God's approval. Here's some next steps I want to share with you this morning, and I think these will really help you because they come from things that have really been helping me. The first next step when it comes to this is you have to name it. You have to name shame. So what I just did with Jerry, when you hear that track going in your head, you hit pause and you go, shame. That's shame. Or when you hear yourself saying something out loud, you stop and go, I'm sorry, that's shame. And if you need help identifying what shame sounds like, I want to encourage you to pull this card out of your bulletin that you got when you walked in this morning. It says, exchanging shame for God's approval. And on this card, there's a chart that contrasts the difference between my shame and God's voice. And I want to draw your attention to the last comparison. My shame condemns me while God's voice convicts me. For some of you who are worried that I'm being soft on sin, no, God does convict us. He does show us that, yeah, Scott, that thing that you did that you knew was wrong, it actually was wrong. That's actually what God's voice does. But in that moment, if we are a follower of Jesus, if we have been forgiven, that voice will not condemn us. It'll convict us and say, you can change. You can do differently. The voice of condemnation will say, hey, that was wrong. And you're always going to struggle with this. And your dad struggled with this. And your mom struggled with this. And you're never going to get over it. And by the way, you're worthless. That's not the voice of God. That's the voice of shame. So the first thing you have to do is name it. The second thing you have to do is talk about it. Because shame dies in two places. Where it's talked about and where it's seen. Shame thrives in two places. In the darkness and in the silence. And so if we can take shame and we can name it and we can talk about it, it loses its power in our lives. And so this is one of the reasons why we are so passionate about community groups here at Cornerstone. I cannot imagine trying to teach this message if I didn't know that well over 200 of you were going to be in a community group this week. Because you can't overcome the voice of shame on your own. I haven't been able to do it on my own. And I've been working at it for years. You need other people. And so this week in your community group, you could show up and talk about the snow we might have tomorrow. You could discuss things that are happening in the world. You could, if you're like me, count down the days till football season begins again. Or you could go and say, hey, we're going to have a real conversation. Here's what the voice of shame sounds like in my life. Here's what the voice of shame sounds like in my life. Hey, you know what? I think I started learning about shame from my mom or from my dad. I think I learned it from my pastor or my Bible study teacher. And when you talk about it, it loses its power. Here's the final step. You got to name it. You got to talk about it. And then every day you have to declare your identity in Christ. Declare your identity in Christ. You say, Scott, what does that look like? On the back of your card, We included a three-step process to help you create what we call identity statements. And I've created these, and what I've found is that more than anything else I've done practically, these kind of statements have helped me make this exchange. I used my statements just before I walked on stage. 
to remind myself that I'm not up here on a stage to perform for you. I'm on a platform to address an audience of one person. And so here's how you create these kind of statements. The first thing you do is you answer three questions. The first one is this. What does the Bible say about who I am in Christ? Get out a piece of paper, pull out your notes app on your phone, and begin writing down, what does the Bible say about who I am in Christ? A couple good places to go is Romans 8. Spoiler alert, the Bible's already there. You can read where we're going in this series. Also go to Ephesians 1 and 2 and begin making notes of who does the Bible say that I am in Christ? Number two, you, you write, answer the question, why do I have worth and value in the eyes of other people and God? Why do I have worth and value in the eyes of other people and God? And then number three, what truths do I believe about who other people are, but I have a hard time believing about myself? See, some of you, if you had a friend who was struggling with shame or insecurity, you would say all sorts of encouraging things about them. But if they turn those things back on you, you go, no, that's not true about me. You can tell them the truth, but you can't receive the truth. And that may be a gap you need to address. So you answer those questions, and if you're like me, you'll have a lot of material. Number two is that you create identity statements. You take that material and then using bullet points, or if you're like me and you're a wordy writer, you write paragraphs, you start writing out who I am. Mine begins with, I am the beloved of Christ, loved by God for who I am, not what I do. God's love for me is not based on my performance. It's based on his character. What I do is not the means to get love I already have all the love I could ever need. And you write statements like that. And you keep going until you're done. And then, most importantly, you practice them daily. Every day when you get up, you pull out your statements and you start reading through them. And you do this day after day after day after day. You go, Scott, that's a lot of work. You have spent thousands of days living in shame. A 35-minute sermon is not going to kick it. I have been using my identity statements some days three and four times a day. Because when I feel like I'm moving back to shame, I go back to what God says I am. And guess what? If it takes four or five times a day, so be it. Because what I'm doing and what we're doing together is we're exchanging our shame for God's approval. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word and the way that it speaks into our struggles and our pain. And God, in a room this size with the number of people that are watching online, it's impossible that there are not tens or even hundreds of us here who have been defeated again and again by shame. God, we know that you don't want us to live under shame. That's why you sent Jesus. And before we could get our act together and do the right thing we knew to do and avoid the wrong thing we knew to do, you sent Jesus and he died for us. And that cross declares that each one of us, regardless of what our past includes, is worthy of your love, is worthy of belonging to you, and is worthy of belonging in this place. 
And so we pray that in the places where we've been getting played in our head by our enemy, Satan, we pray that this would be the beginning of a season where we would begin to step into freedom, where we would lay down those destructive voices and those false beliefs and that self that does not align with who you say we are and we would grab a hold and pick up and embrace and live in the truth of who you say we are because of Jesus. God, we pray that over the next six weeks that you would break strongholds, that you would release captives, that you would deliver slaves, that you would break generational sin habits, and that you would set us free. So that when we stand here in six weeks on Easter and celebrate how you rose from the grave, we wouldn't just be celebrating your freedom. God, we would be proclaiming ours. And we pray that you would do what only you can do. Give us the power to believe that what you say about us is the truest statement of our worth and value. We thank you love us. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.